from Ruth, chapter two, nine through nine. Hi, sorry about that. <laughs> My bad. Okay, so can you hear me? <laughs> um, the scripture this morning can be found in your bulletin. Comes from Ruth chapter two, um, Ruth chapter two, verses one to three, and then verses eight to twelve. Okay. And goes like this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man in the clan, from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to, to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to, to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed, passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And he also pulls some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, with, with his young woman. Let in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, 
leading until the end of barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, we gotta pray, right? Let's ask for God to help us, let's pray. Lord, we do need your help. It's good news that you call yourself our helper. You promise to help. You're more than able to help. Help us to hear your word and help these stories to come alive to us, building points of contact with our own hearts, our fears, our needs. Bring us near to your word. Help us to come alive spiritually to the truth and the truths, especially those that maybe we resist. What we most need to hear and see is Jesus, so help us to see him. And we pray that you would make this time a blessing. We pray that every person would have some real encounter with the living God in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last, last week, my son got into a little tiff with some older boys in the playground. And so that got me thinking about one of my own earliest fights as a kid. Uh, I was in the second grade, I think, and I was playing with my soccer ball, white and red, next to a strip mall while my mom was doing some shopping. And then another kid showed up with a friend or two of his and took my ball away from me. And after he refused to give it back to me, after I asked him again and again, and while he was mocking me the entire time, finally I charged in like a linebacker to grab my ball from him. I remember this pretty clearly. As... I finally got the ball free from his arms. Uh, the kid punches me in the stomach, and finally, with the ball, I walk away, but I was nearly in tears, frustrated and sad and mad and a little sore in the tummy. And a minute or two later, my mom came outside from her shopping and found me there nearly in tears, and so, of course, I told her all that had just happened, and I don't really know what I expected her to do, but I was a little surprised when almost immediately my mom marched out back to where that kid and his friends were and where they were still lingering. And she started stomping towards them, hollering and pointing, who was it? Which one of you? This one here, you, this boy, I think it was you. And the kid looked pretty sheepish. And I didn't mind. <laughs> as a younger man, as I grew up a little bit more and looked back upon that incident, I came to be just a little bit uncomfortable, as you can imagine, right? I would have much preferred a different ending to the story, you know, one in which I stood up for myself and had a, uh, you know, you, you should have seen the other guy kind of a moment. It wasn't that, you know, a, an ending in which I didn't need my mom, of all people, to come to my defense. But I think I've also learned to appreciate that moment. 
in particular, appreciate my mom's sincere, if bumbling, parental love. Because I've learned to recognize that not everyone's got someone in their life, let alone a parent who will take your hurts personally, uh, who will go out of their way to protect you, even in the little things. That's just a story from my life, a little story. How about you? Has someone ever protected you in a moment of vulnerability? at home or in the workplace or on the playground, whether physically or emotionally, relationally? Has anyone ever protected you in a moment of vulnerability? Vulnerability and protection, that's what today's passage is about. We're looking at the second chapter of the book of Ruth. Last week we started a new teaching series on Ruth from the Old Testament. And if you were here with us last week, you know, and if you weren't, would like to tell you a little bit about chapter one. There we meet Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Tragically, both of them lost their husbands to some sort of a death we don't really know, leaving them emotionally and economically and legally and physically vulnerable in the ancient society in which they lived. As Naomi sets off to return home to Bethlehem, Ruth, in this grand moment of self-sacrifice and loyal love, decides to stay with Naomi. She clung to Naomi, we're told, in chapter 1. Naomi, her her widowed, grieving mother-in-law, Ruth decided to go back with her. She gave up her own future. She was from another land, Moab. She gave up her homeland, her own livelihood, her own well-being for the sake of Naomi's. So striking was Ruth's act of love and commitment that apparently word had gotten out about their story when Naomi and Ruth had finally arrived in Bethlehem. That's why in verse 6 of today's passage, we hear people saying of Ruth, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And in verse 11, we find a reference to what you, Ruth, have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. Ruth had loved well. And by God's grace, so should we. And now in chapter 2, as they settle into their new lives With such an uncertain future, we see the way that love meets us in our vulnerability. Or as 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 says, love always protects. This is a passage that just oozes with protecting love. Everyone is protecting each other. Ruth is protecting Naomi. Boaz is protecting Ruth. God is protecting both Ruth and Naomi. There's a lot of protecting love here. Let's take a look and let's learn. Number one, Ruth protects Naomi. 
It's not clear exactly what state Naomi might be in. She's probably still grieving with all the losses that she's incurred in her recent past. Ruth gets up on her feet, even in the midst of her own loss. We talked about this last week. Grieving the death of her own husband, estranged now from her own family, and yet she finds the courage and the strength to get up and to serve Naomi by working. We're told in verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. You notice she's going out of her way to take initiative to provide for their little limping family. She doesn't say, hey, hey, mom-in-law, you got to carry your own weight around here. Come on. No, she takes the initiative to protect, to give mom space to grieve. Mom, in her older age and perhaps her greater emotional weakness, Ruth loves and protects by working, going out into the fields. And even after she finishes her work, she's so generous, isn't she? At the end of the story, we're told in verse 18 that she actually shares the surplus of her earnings. It says she carried it back to town, the grain that she had harvested. And her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. And Ruth said, well, this is what I earned over here and you can get. No, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Even our work, even our diligence can be a form of protecting love. It was for Ruth, how about you? Have you thought about your daily work in that way? That the skills and the objectives that you apply yourselves to every day, nine to five, so to speak, is either directly or indirectly some way in which you are caring for another person, providing for another person, even protecting them in their vulnerabilities. Whether your children or your family, whether your neighbor, whether the common good that is so wrought and riddled with people falling through the cracks. Your labor of work is a labor of love, of protection, whether your work in the home or out of the home whether your work is for pay or not for pay, whether if it's full-time or if it's part-time, have you thought of your work like that lately? Work and protect as an act of love. Secondly, we find not only Ruth protecting Naomi, right away we see God protecting Ruth and Naomi, God himself. We're told in verse 2 that Ruth says, I'm going to go out into the fields. And then right away in verse 3, it says, so Ruth, she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And the whole of this passage tells us again and again how Ruth is following behind different harvesters. And she's picking up grain. And this is the way in which she supplies for the needs of herself and of Naomi. And what she's essentially doing there is she's following the practice that was prescribed by God himself in the laws of Israel as recorded in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24. There we find that God has told farmers that in the time of harvest in their fields that they ought to leave a portion of the crop to be gathered by those 
who are in need. God said, don't harvest all the way out to the edges, but intentionally and sacrificially stay in the middle so that those who most have needs might be able to follow in and gather what you had not collected of your crops and your grapes and your barley. And he also says, go and harvest, but don't go back a second time to make sure that you maximize the full extent of the grain that you've produced, the things that you've missed or the things that you've dropped. Rather, leave it intentionally and sacrificially so that those greatest in need might be able to come from behind you and clean up the remains. It shall be, God said, for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. This is God providing for Ruth and Naomi, even through the practices and the customs and the laws of Israel. Feeding them as they had need. Feeding them in a way that would fill them. God caring for these two. And it reminds us, of course, that God himself is the protector par excellence. The protector of the poor and the vulnerable. This is God himself who is coming and showing up in their lives. And he calls us as well. Just as he used the farmers in those days to provide for the needs of those around them. Calls us too to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And caring for the needs of those around us. How can you be the protector as it were? In love of those that are most vulnerable and in need around you. Well, here's one way. The principles here in this gleaning practice lead us to say this. That there's wisdom and even compassion and perhaps even justice. To being committed to not living and working. Simply to maximize personal profit to yourself alone. But rather that we in our lifestyles, in our budgets, that we might build in from the very beginning a prior commitment to sacrificial giving. Again, not as an afterthought, but as a centerpiece to how you relate to the blessings that God has given to you in your lives. How can you actually not glean out to the outer edges of your field? And not to comb through the fields a second time, so to speak. But rather to set aside some portion of what you are and who you are always to serve the poor. And to do it in a way that's cooperative. You notice the way that this was set up, these gleaning practices. That the pleasure and the privilege of laboring themselves was always afforded those that were collecting those most in need. That God still gave them the joy and the dignity of working, of earning, of using their labor and their gifts and their energy in order to provide for those under their care. How can we do that as well in the way that we love those in need around us. This is the wisdom that we get from God. This is the model that we find in God as God protects 
Ruth and Naomi. But there's a second way, too, that God protects Ruth and Naomi. And in a lot of ways, this is the main point of the passage. The way in which God is actually overseeing and directing every last circumstance in this passage. Remember, Ruth and Naomi's circumstances look pretty bleak. Maybe yours look bleak before your eyes today. There seems to be a not-so-hopeful future before them. What's interesting, of course, is that Ruth doesn't sit at home, despondent, inactive, or passive, but she keeps moving forward in life almost as if to express her trust that God indeed is in control. Even her going out into the gleaning fields is her way of surrendering to God and saying that my life is in your hands. We're told in verse 3, she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Of course, you know that Boaz turns out to be a dominant figure throughout this story as Ruth interacts with him as Boaz offers care and protection over Ruth. And yet at this point of the story, it's not exactly clear. This much is clear, though, that Ruth didn't know whose field she was working in. Not only so, but Naomi doesn't know that Ruth has worked in Boaz's field either. And it's why in verse 3, the narrator tries to point this out with this language. You just heard me read it. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. See, God is orchestrating an amazing encounter that changes not only their personal lives, but also the whole course of the Bible's history. But the, na the narrator is almost playing with words to draw our attention to how much this could not possibly be simply by chance. In fact, in the ancient language that's being translated here, it could be rendered not just as it turned out she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, but by chance, Ruth chanced upon a field belonging to Boaz. The author's making a point. And the point is simply this. Under the sovereign care of God, there is no simple by chance. There is no blind as it turns out. If you belong to God in Christ, you are in the hands of a loving, strong, heavenly Father. The narrator even tells us that we're in verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Again, another coincidence. Not just that Ruth landed in, of all fields, Boaz's fields, but just at that time, he happened to be swinging through so that they might have a conversation in the beginnings of a relationship. Even in the beginning of the passage, it's clear that the narrator can barely hold it in. He almost lets the cat out of the bag in the very first verse of this passage. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz, repeating again and again this unique relationship that Boaz had to Naomi's husband, which changes the whole picture, and it's this. As Naomi herself says in verse 20, as she explains to Ruth, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Guardian Redeemer, what's that? 
It's an interesting word in the original Hebrew text and all throughout the life of Israel that refers to a male Israelite who could be called upon to protect the legal and the financial interests of a family member who had fallen on hard times. This is often translated, an older translation uses the terms kinsman redeemer. Again, it emphasizes some family member that can help you when you're in dire straits. Someone that can come protect you. Someone that can stand in from you for you. Someone that can protect you when you are financially and legally vulnerable. And so, in Leviticus 25, we're told that if an Israelite becomes poor and sells the family property to pay off his debt, a guardian redeemer in the family can later pay for that property to keep the land from being lost from the family. Or if that same Israelite were to sell himself into indentured servitude in order to pay off his debt, working off his debt, as it were, that a guardian redeemer can actually pay to free him from servitude and from debt. Or in Deuteronomy 25, if an Israelite dies without an heir, without a son, a guardian redeemer could marry his brother's widow in order to continue the family line. Again and again, there are different examples and applications. But the heart of the role of this guardian redeemer consists of four elements. One, he is a family member. Two, he helps another vulnerable or needy family member. Three, in helping, he provides freedom from some condition of suffering. And fourth, he does so by paying a price. See, the story is just beginning, and we will uh, unpack this role of the guardian redeemer throughout the story of Ruth over the next couple of weeks. But already we have this indication that God is going to, yes, he is going to protect and to provide for Ruth and Naomi through their guardian redeemer, Boaz. You see, the story starts off with almost an allusion to the possibility that these things are unfolding by chance. By the end of the story, it becomes clear, uh uh-uh, not at all. God has orchestrated it all. Beloved, do you know today that God is orchestrating the facts and the details and the circumstances of your lives. Even the parts that feel confusing to you, even the parts that are blurry and hard to discern, even the parts that hurt. Do you understand that God is sovereign even over your choices, guiding and directing the decisions that you make as well. Too many of us, so many of us, are fearful and even paralyzed by the decisions that are put before us. Afraid of making the wrong decision, afraid of guiding yourself or your family or your future off the cliff. Afraid so much so that maybe you're shrinking back with the sense that I need to protect myself. Don't you know you are acting as if, if you are in Christ, as though you don't have a heavenly father in God. As if you need to protect yourself because you yourself don't have a protector. Friends, don't you know the words of 
Proverbs 16, verse 9, that says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. He's guiding your steps. Or of Job 42, 2, I know that you, God, can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Which, of course, doesn't mean that there is not such thing as a foolish choice. Yes, we in our weakness, limitations, and sins, we are prone to making foolish choices. And it's not to say that there are no possibilities that we might make mistakes or even sin in our decisions and our choices. But here's mercy and confidence for the foolish, for the undiscerning, and even for the sinful. No ultimate purpose in your life that God has planned for you can ever, ever, ever be thwarted. No ultimate plan, no ultimate path that he has you on can ever be thrown off. You in your foolishness are not stronger than God. You in your weakness and even in your blindness in your decision making are not stronger than God. You in your sinfulness are not stronger than the sin saving, redeeming, loving, forgiving God of the universe. This gives us hope. Too many of us, of course, live as though we are subject to chance. We're rooting for good luck to show up in our lives, even for those who might be professing Christians. We're relating to life as if we're dealing with naked and blind forces rather than a loving and strong heavenly father. God doesn't rescue Ruth and Naomi from hardship in every circumstance, but he is leading them down a path of glorious redemption. Guess what? If you are in Christ, the same is true of you. Thirdly, Boaz protects Ruth. It's not only Ruth that's protecting Naomi. It's not only God protecting the both of them. But also here, Boaz is protecting Ruth. He interacts with this young woman that he does not recognize in his fields. He asks some of his workers, the foreman, who she is. And he gets some information, and then he responds to her in this way in verse 8. My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have, uh, have filled. He's not just looking at Ruth and talking to Ruth and interacting with Ruth, don't you see, he's actually protecting Ruth from harm. Naomi recognized this later as well in verse 22 when she said to Ruth, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Now, what was it that Naomi understood, that Boaz understood, that we might not understand because we're distant from the context of this text? You have to understand, of course, as we talked about before, she was poor. She was simply without means in this new situation in life. 
That's why in verse 16, Boaz instructs his men, even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. He's trying to provide for her material needs. But Ruth is also a foreigner. She's from Moab. She has no family, no one to get her back. In fact, she comes from Moab, which was in history an enemy nation of Israel. There was probably a lot of negative sentiment and hostility towards people like her. Ruth even points this out in verse 10. When she volunteers this identity, when she says, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? She realizes that this is a strange thing that he has done to her, a Moabitess. But thirdly also, she's not only poor and a foreigner, Moabite, but she was a woman. In other words, she was vulnerable to sexual assault. As one writer points out, fields of tall, uncut wheat were in that day the perfect environment for women to be assaulted by male harvesters unobserved. Women with husbands or fathers to watch over them were guaranteed some measure of protection. Widowed or foreign women were not. And so here's Boaz stepping in in verse 15. As he got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. He tells Ruth himself, I've told my men not to touch you, not to lay their hands upon you. In every way that Ruth is vulnerable, Boaz sweeps in to protect her. She's a sexually vulnerable woman. Boaz protects her by pushing his men away. She's a widow. He even calls her daughter, inviting her into family. She's hungry. He gives her food and with such generosity, the way in which he gives her far more than she needs, where she ate all she wanted, it says in verse 14, and had some left over. She's a foreigner. She's disconnected. But Boaz includes her with his workers. We're told that she was sat down with the harvesters. She was given a, a seat at the table. Boaz says, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. He treats her again like family. He elevates her status. He protects her. In fact, his protection of her is only starting as we've given, been given a hint, his legal obligation to serve as a guardian redeemer of Ruth and Naomi is going to get worked out over the next couple of chapters. But what we see here already is that he's got not just a guardian redeemer obligation, he's got a guardian redeemer's heart. Do we? Do you and I? Who do you need to protect? Who do we need to protect in love? It might be the materially vulnerable neighbor around the corner, even in this congregation. It might be someone that's emotionally vulnerable. Maybe someone that you know across the street or at work, or maybe someone in your own home that you've been neglecting. Maybe it's your children or the children of the neighborhood protecting their minds, their hearts, even their bodies. Uh, maybe like Ruth, maybe it's a, a, a foreigner or a refugee that you're aware of or that you need to make yourself aware of. Someone who's not accustomed to the English language or who doesn't know how to navigate the social systems in our neighborhood and 
in our complicated city. And as today is the last day of Hispanic Heritage Month, maybe it's a good time to remember not only the beauty and the blessings of our Latino neighbors, but also the many vulnerability, vulnerabilities of our many Latino neighbors. Maybe it's a coworker that God might put on your mind and on your heart. Because the gleaning fields were also a work setting. Of course, is there someone at work that's vulnerable to the powers that be, someone that in love that you need to work to protect and walk alongside? I do want to, for a second, focus a minute on the matter of the vulnerability of women who in our society are all too often victimized by a culture of sexual consumption and exploitation and abuse. And of course, we've been reminded of this challenge both by the recent passing of Hugh Hefner and also the latest Hollywood scandal involving movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Because you know, the problem isn't just in Hollywood. Uh, the problem is in society as a whole. The problem is often, sadly, even in the church. This past week, I came across a wonderfully thought-provoking article called Boys Will Be Boaz. Uh, in it, Christian writer Rachel Stark, uh, she essentially raises, these are my words, not hers, but she essentially raises this question. In such a hypersexualized and exploitative culture, is it possible today to raise young men to grow up to be other than predators and pornographers? Is that even possible anymore? And her answer is, yes, it is. And her proof, Boaz. Rachel Stark does a wonderful job pointing out correctly that Boaz, in this time, was living in a culture that was famous for its exploitation of women. It's why Boaz was so quick to sweep in to protect Ruth, because he knew how things worked. As we're told in Judges chapter 9, right in this period, we're told of a nightmarish story of abuse as indicative of the sort of thing that had been going on even right here in this city of Bethlehem. Is it possible to raise young men, young women, too? Or to turn the hearts of older men and older women to uphold the dignity of women? To appropriately protect without paternalizing to simply love and respect? The Bible's answer is yes. The proof, Boaz. But more than that, the proof is Jesus and his work in many of your lives and the way that we do see, even in our community, evidences of people. Men, women who have learned to esteem women in a culture of sexual consumption and exploitation and abuse where the call again and again to us 
the question that we must grapple with is what would it look like for Christians everywhere to protect the dignity of women? Where Christians should reflect on this, not with finger-pointing self-righteousness, but with lament and humility, and humility, of course, as I said, because sadly the church isn't immune to these problems either. And so whether women around you or others, again, who might God be calling you to protect in love? Because, you know, all those who are in Christ are called to be guardian redeemers, too. Are called to be those who treat others with a family-like sense of obligation, bearing burdens who go out of their way to care for people, even protect them in their vulnerabilities, uh, who put it on their back, to, who, who offer themselves with sacrificial love, paying a price so that that person and those dear friends, family members might be set free, redeemed, freed from their suffering and their pain. You see, a guardian redeemer takes such sufferings personally takes ownership, personal ownership of these struggles, making the other person's burdens your own. Will we be a burden-bearing, guardian, guardian redeemer in community? And we do, will we do so out of the strength of the personal experience of Christ's redeeming love? Where do you get the power to do all this but to experience that love in your own life? Jesus, after all, is the ultimate guardian redeemer, isn't he? Isn't he? Jesus, who identified with us in our humanity, our frailty, our vulnerability, even calling us dear family. Cared for us in our helplessness, didn't call out to you to go ahead and help yourself, but called himself Savior. Because he knew you and I could not save ourselves, bore our burdens, paid the price, set us free from our sins, giving us life by giving up his life, dying for us, protecting us from the ultimate threat, which is the suffering and judgment for our sins. Behold the guarding redeemer of Jesus. And when you've been loved like him, you begin to love, when you've been loved by him, don't you begin to love like him? with a protecting love. Because again, as 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7 tells us, love, the love of Jesus always protects. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. Be like Jesus. Protect. Love. To the glory of Jesus. That we might bring more people under the testimony of Ruth, who even in Boaz's words in verse 12 said, You are one protected by God under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May God make this community filled with guardian redeemers, filled with protectors. May God make this community such a place of Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would give us grace and help and hope. 
Change our hearts and make us more like Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.